Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 as we continue through this book. We've now reached a new section. I'd like us to read verses 14 to 21. But going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to make him known, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The key to that passage is found in verse 18. It is the a title, a title given to Christ by the Father. He is referred to as my servant. Uh, that comes from Isaiah 42.1, uh, the verse that Matthew is quoting here. There are many titles in the Bible given to the Messiah, but calling him my servant is very special. In fact, it was so special to the prophet Isaiah that he used that term three different times in his book. Uh, this introduces us to the very significance of this passage. It is a presentation of Jesus Christ in his wonder, beauty, and majesty. And it comes almost as it were as a, in an oasis in the middle of a desert. Uh, the desert are chapters 11 and 12, which chronicle for us the rejection of Jesus. In chapters 11 and 12 of, of Matthew, it's all about rejection. And as we've looked at these two chapters, we've seen there's sort of a progression as the nation of Israel rejects Jesus as its Messiah. Uh, Matthew gives us an illustration of doubt, which is the only response that both believers and unbelievers can experience. Uh, the other three, criticism, indifference, and rejection, are all responses of unbelievers. And then we enter chapter 12, Jesus having been rejected is blasphemed, and the things that he does are ascribed to Satan. And all of this is led by the Pharisees and the scribes who were the supposed leaders, the religious leaders of the nation. And in contrast to their conclusion, which we saw in verse 14, which says they took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him, the Spirit of God has Matthew drop in this marvelous presentation of the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ. Uh, the purpose is to let us know that God says the very opposite about Christ as to what the world has to say about him. Uh, it is to establish an indictment of Israel and her leaders for having made such evil conclusions about him. Matthew is bringing out the truth that Jesus' Messiahship fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And so we're introduced to the Son by the Father who says he is his servant and he is his beloved, and in spite of what the nation concludes, in spite of what the leaders conclude, in spite of what the world says, God's testimony about him is here. And may I submit to you that based on what Jesus said in John 5:37, there is no greater testimony than that of God the Father uh, to the Son. Uh, that's where Jesus said, The Father sent me who has borne witness about me. And this is his testimony as recorded first by the prophet Isaiah, as interpreted to us from Isaiah by Matthew, and so it's a blistering indictment of the ungodliness of the leaders of Israel. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to face the fact that it presents to us a series of characteristics about Jesus Christ. So let's look again, again with verse 14. We'll see the first characteristic of Christ, beloved servant of God, and that is that he was condemned by false servants. It says, but going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, we looked at this verse at the conclusion of our last study. But it also serves as an introduction to the next section, so we're going to look at it again briefly. Uh, notice that the only thing that the Pharisees took counsel to do was what? 
how to destroy him. They, they would have destroyed him on the spot if they could have, but they were intimidated by two things. They were intimidated by the fact that there was an extremely impressed synagogue crowd uh, standing there that had just heard him and seen his incredible healing miracle, and they were afraid of the people. And additionally, they were afraid of the Roman government because the government had taken away the right of execution from them. So they needed to plot a way that they could kill him and bypass these rather intimidating realities. And so the council was not to determine whether or not to kill him, but how to kill him. Luke says that they were filled with rage or fury. And of course, it had finally culminated in his violation fragrantly and openly of their rabbinic Sabbath traditions, which he shattered to show them just how important their man-made rules were to him. Mark tells us that they were so bent on killing him that they enlisted the help of their arch enemies, the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were ungodly, irreligious, worldly secularists. They were the exact opposite of the Pharisees, more so than any other group. Uh, the Herodians were a group of people totally committed to the political security of the reign of Herod. And Herod was a Gentile. He was an uh, Edomian, an Edomite, uh, not a Jew. The Herodians were the ones who felt that Herod should have the power. So you can imagine how desperate the Pharisees must have been to kill Jesus if they were willing to ally themselves with the Herodians when they uh, so despised and hated any Gentiles, but particularly the Herodians. When it, but when it came to Jesus Christ, they would go to any extreme. These kind of efforts uh, make strange bedfellows, don't they? Uh, the legalists and the antinomians, the religionists and the secularists all agree that they would like to get rid of Jesus. The Pharisees want to do it in order to secure their own power, and the Herodians want to do it in order to ensure Herod's power. Uh, the Pharisees hate him because he continuously breaks their Sabbath traditions. The Herodians hate him because they're aware of his miraculous powers that he could use to overthrow Herod if he wished to. And so the two groups join together to plot his murder. And eventually they succeed and he's executed at the hands of the Roman soldiers. So then we find ourselves here in Matthew 12:14 at an apex. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce refers to this as a watershed moment in Christ's ministry because the full and open rejection of Christ has occurred. The first nine chapters presented his majesty. The 10th chapter, he sent out his messengers. The 11th and 12th chapters cataloged his rejection. And finally, in chapter 12, we'll see that they not only concluded he wasn't the Messiah, but that he was right out of hell. And so those who suppose themselves to be the protectors of the word of God set out to murder the servant son of God. But we shouldn't be surprised by that because that has always been the legacy of God's prophets. Uh, Jesus gave a parable in Matthew 21 that we will get to some day in the far future, uh, in which he said that a landowner had a vineyard and he rented, out, uh, he rented it out to some vine growers. And when the harvest time came, he sent his slaves to collect the fruit. But the vine growers beat and killed him. And this happened repeatedly. So finally he sent his own son and they killed him too. And it was clearly a parable about the response of Israel's religious leaders uh, to the prophets and to Jesus. Uh, you see, Satan's system dominates the world and it sets the false system against the true system. And there's always warfare. Israel throughout its history slew the true prophets of God. Uh, it's always so that the false shepherds attack the true shepherds, that the false shepherds attack the true teachers. In fact, you can usually tell where a Bible teacher stands by who is opposed to him. Uh, so this is the rejection of Jesus. The false shepherds threw their weight against the true shepherd. Uh, Jesus expected that because, as John 1.11 says, he came to his what was his own, and those who were who his own did not receive him. So his life was a life in which there was constant attack. 
Now, in his account of the growing antagonism and outright rejection of Jesus, Matthew inserts this section to explain the incredible characteristics of this servant whom the world hates, but God dearly loves. And there are seven of them in this, these verses. I want us to work our way through them. First is found in verses 15 to 17, is that he conformed to God's plan. He conformed to God's plan. Look at these verses again. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to make him known, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying. Well, actually, that, yeah, that does go through 17. Uh, Jesus is fully aware of this bitter hatred and the Pharisees' plot to kill him. He's omniscient. He knew everything. He didn't any, need anyone to tell him. He didn't need to overhear their whispers to one another. And so being aware of it, the text says he withdrew from there. Uh, he left. It was not yet the Father's time for the Son uh, to, uh, and his ministry and life to be ended. Uh, he was conformed to the Father's plan. He could easily have saved himself and destroyed those who sought to destroy him, but that was not God's will or plan. Uh, you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came to arrest him? John 18 records that he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene, and he simply said, I am he. And they all fell down. Now, those guys weren't the Keystone cops who tripped over their own feet. They were the crack troops of Fort Antonius. And he knocked them over by his power with just a spoken word. Uh, a few minutes later, Peter draws out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. And Jesus tells him, put your sword back into its place for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. That would certainly have been enough to deal with the problem. Because in 2 Kings 19.35, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. So 12 legions of angels, about 72,000 angels, should, could certainly have done a whole lot of damage. He had the power to undo what his enemies had done, to obliterate them on the spot. But he was a servant. He was conformed to God's plan. His, God's, it had a very defined ending, a very defined timetable. And this was not the time, and so he withdrew. Now, Matthew was recording this incident, which took place somewhere in Galilee. Uh, John 5 records that the same thing happened to him again in Jerusalem. Uh, he, had done, he had healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, and because that violated their Sabbath traditions, they also plotted to kill him. So it's getting to be a pretty routine thing. Uh, but what a sad commentary on Israel after centuries of waiting for their Messiah. <clears throat> he comes, they reject him, and he begins to withdraw. And as we will see as we continue our study in this book, it becomes a constant cycle all the way up to chapter 21. It just keeps happening over and over again. He would go out into an area, he would preach and teach and heal. There would be great response and then there would become opposition. And he would start, he would withdraw to a new area, and it would start the whole cycle all over again. Preaching, teaching, healing, response, opposition, withdrawal. Uh, all through these years, it's the same cycle as the opposition increased and its animosity under the in its animosity under the leadership of these false shepherds. He just kept withdrawing and moving away. I love how John MacArthur described this in his commentary on Matthew. He writes, quote, Jesus was never forced away from a place of ministry, but always withdrew of his own volition. Had he been willing to use his power for that purpose, he could have continued in any place doing entirely as he pleased, because no force, including the crack troops of Rome, could have hindered him in the least way. But the father's plan was not to shed Roman blood, but his son's blood, because only his, his son's blood could atone for the sins of mankind and open the way to heaven. End quote. Isn't that good? The point is that Christ's death must not come at the hands of a mob or a crowd, 
but on a cross. And he was totally committed to the Father's will, and that's the essence of his servanthood. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He says, I can do nothing for myself, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. You see, that is the essence of the incarnation. He restricted all of those personal prerogatives and willingly submitted everything to the Father. Not only to the Father's will, but also to the Father's timing. For those who've been with us in this class for a number of years, many years and for that fact, uh, you may recall when we studied the Gospel of John, we saw that several times he said, my hour has not yet come. And then later when he's about to be betrayed and crucified, then he says, the hour has come. Uh, he was totally submissive to the Father's will. That's the heart of a servant. And there was never a servant like this servant, who according to Philippians 2, 6-8, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave by being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, in a sense, Isaac is a picture of this. Uh, Isaac, beloved by his father Abraham, who was likely in his 20s at the time, which means Abraham would have been over 120, willingly allowed his father to bind him and then laid down on the altar and prostrated himself as his father lifts the knife into the air. Only in Christ's case, the hand was never stayed and the sacrifice was made. There's another element to his submissiveness to the divine plan. We see that in verse 16. He told the people who were healed not to tell anyone, not to make him known. That's confused people for a long time because they assume that Jesus would have wanted to make it fully known who he was, but that's not the case. In fact, if you recall back in chapter 8, verse 4, after Jesus healed a leper, he told him not to tell anyone. And then you go back to chapter 9, verse 30, you find that he healed two blind men and he sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows about this. And so people always ask the question, why does Jesus say that? Well, I think there's several answers. First, I believe that Jesus knew the problem of secondhand stories and how they get twisted and perverted and denied. So I believe he wanted to deal with people on a firsthand basis. He wanted them to be confronted with the evidence uh, themselves in their own presence before they started making a verdict about him. That's why when he healed the leper, he told the man to go show himself to the priest. Because when he would go to the priest as a person who claimed to have healed, been healed from leprosy, he would have had to go through a sequence of checks and examinations and all of this to prove that he had had leprosy and had been totally delivered. Uh, they had this entire procedure that they put people through so that they could introduce themselves back into society. And the point that Jesus wanted to make was you go, you let them know uh, that you were healed of leprosy, let them make their full examination, and when they've concluded, concluded that you're totally healed of leprosy, then tell them who did it, and they'll be stuck with their own verdict. Uh, because he wanted firsthand conclusion when people were confronted with a reality. That's why when the disciples of John the Baptist came along and said, we want to ask you a question. Are you the Messiah, or should we look for someone else? He didn't say, well, you know, I've done a lot of miracles. Ask the people who are healed. They'll tell you about them. No. Instead, he says, stand there and watch. And he instantaneously healed a whole bunch of people. And to show who, them who he was. And he says, now you go tell John what you saw. There's a second reason I think he didn't want them to spread this about, and that's the fact he didn't want to become known strictly as a miracle worker. Uh, he didn't want a distortion of the purpose for which he came, and that would easily become the dominant feature in his ministry because people long so deeply for deliverance from physical problems. Who, who he was in his person was the issue, not his miracles. And some might be attracted for the wrong causes and the wrong reasons. Third, he knew all too well that a demonstration of that kind of power would easily flame the, the, fan the flame of enthusiasm about him 
as a potential political deliverer from Rome. Uh, I think that's what they had in mind when he fed the crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. Uh, so there's probably 15,000, 20,000 people there. He feeds all this multitude. He created the food. Immediately they want to make him king uh, because they figured there'd never be anybody else with that kind of power. So he could easily overthrow Rome and give them food and heal all their diseases. But he didn't want to be known as a miracle worker because all that did was fan that flame, that enthusiasm to try to push him towards a political kind of revolution. Fourth, I think he didn't want everyone to know about this because that would heighten the rage of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he was trying to keep that at a somewhat mitigated level because he didn't want everything to explode and burst out before God's perfect timing. He was on a divine schedule, divine timetable. And fifth, he didn't want people to spread this abroad because it wasn't the time of his, this wasn't the time of his exaltation, this is the time of his humiliation. Exaltation would come later. Uh, he didn't seek that kind of fame. And so in wonderful submission, he conforms to God's plan. It's utterly the opposite of the Pharisees who were utterly, utterly and totally conformed to their own selfish desires and had no clue what the will of God was. Uh, they're so self-centered that they were ready to execute the anointed one of God. Another aspect of his submissiveness to God's plan is his concern for the needy. Look at verse 15 again. It says that when he withdrew from there, many followed him and he healed them all. He healed all of them. You realize that Jesus healed people that didn't necessarily believe in him? Uh, in Luke 17, we read that he healed 10 lepers. How many of them came back to thank him? One. One. Uh, one guy who was, not only was he a leper, but he was a Samaritan. And he fell down and worshipped him and thanked him. And to that guy, he says, your faith has saved you. He wasn't talking about being physically saved from leprosy. That, that had already been done for all ten of them. He was talking about spiritual salvation. There were ten healed, but only one who was redeemed. We just saw back in Matthew 11, where he said, I did miracles in Chorazin. I did miracles in Bethsaida. I did miracles in Capernaum, but it's obvious you don't believe and you'll have greater judgment than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah for what you've seen and rejected. So why then this demonstration of healing everyone? I believe it was to demonstrate the heart of God. The heart of God is towards hurting people. The heart of God is towards those who have deep, great, profound need, the ones who are ignored by everybody else. The Pharisees weren't interested in those people. Uh, the religious leaders weren't interested in the outcasts, the, the sick, the lame, the deaf, the mute, the blind. They weren't interested in the poor and those without any financial resources. They were interested in the rich and the famous and the powerful. All those who seek the high places of power and authority and wealth seek those kind of people. And Jesus, though, he sought the lowly. Remember in the last incident we just just before this where the man had a paralyzed, withered hand? Rather than being sympathetic to the man's great need, all he meant to the Pharisees was that he presented an opportunity to trap Jesus in a violation of their traditions that prohibited healing on the Sabbath. They didn't care about that man himself. They just wanted to use him to trap Jesus. So they asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? All they're concerned about was his compliance with their legalism. And Jesus says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and then he healed the man. That's the difference. Back in chapter 9, verse 36, we saw that Jesus looked at the crowds, and it says he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And the two Greek words that Matthew uses there are very interesting. The word distressed means to be flayed, to be lacerated, that is, to have your skin ripped to shreds. Over time, it came to be used metaphorically of being in great trouble or poor condition. And the word downcast means to be thrown down or cast down with an idea of being rejected and considered totally worthless. And Jesus looked at people and he saw them as shredded, ripped to shreds, and thrown aside as worthless. And you know who had done that? 
the false shepherds. That's who. How? By binding incredible burdens of legalism on them that they themselves couldn't even bear. By devouring the poor and the widows, by despising the people and then offering no help to assist them. They were wolves dressed up like shepherds and instead of feeding the sheep, they destroyed the sheep. They're like the false shepherd of Zechariah 11.16 who eats the sheep, tearing them completely apart. And the true shepherd comes along and he sees them and he's moved with compassion. And in chapter 4, we saw how he healed them of all their various diseases and reached out to the outcast. We see him later on in Matthew with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the wretched people. We see him reaching out in the Sermon on the Mount saying, don't worry or take any thought about what you'll eat or drink or where. I'll take care of that. You just seek my kingdom. I'll provide all those things. And we see him at the end of the chapter 11 saying very tenderly, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and you'll learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's so it's not at all surprising to read that he healed them all because that's the heart of God. No one was left out. Apostle Peter certainly knew the heart of God. He saw it in Christ. That's why he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He knew that because Jesus had exhibited that over and over and over again. And ultimately, in his glorious kingdom, disease will be totally controlled because the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. And finally, in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no sickness, no sorrow, no tears, no more death, because God will eliminate all of it. Christ felt the pain of hurting people. He still feels that. He was submissive to God's plan, and God's heart loves those who are downtrodden and hurting. You remember what Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61 when he announced his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth? He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Those are the people he came to minister to because they're the people who are near and dear to the heart of God. Now, if you were a Jew in Jesus' time, you might look at him and say, how can this guy be the Messiah? After all, he's despised by the religious leaders. Can this be the Messiah when he spends all of his time withdrawing, leaving, and never gathers an army for the revolution? Can this be the Messiah who pays no attention to the up and inners, but always to the down and outers? <laughs> but Matthew wants us to know that it's not only the Messiah, but it's the very Messiah prophesied by Isaiah. And so he says in verse 17 that it was planned and intended by God. Look at this. It says, in, why? In order that what was spoken through the Isaiah, the prophet, would be fulfilled. He's saying Isaiah said he would be like this. Jesus didn't come to heal the confused and unscriptural expectations of the people, but to fulfill his divine mission as predicted in his own word. He's therefore determined that every divine prediction about him would be fulfilled. Verses 18 to 21 is a modified quotation of Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. <coughs> and one of the most strikingly beautiful descriptions of Jesus Christ anywhere in Scripture. It's the longest quotation from the Old Testament in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew doesn't quote Isaiah verbatim, but he interprets his statement as he quotes it. Uh, Bible scholar William Hendrickson refers to it as, quote, Isaiah 42, 1-4, as interpreted by Christ's fully inspired Apostle Matthew, end quote. Uh, it's a marvelous act of the inspiration of the Spirit of God interpreting the passage as it is quoted in its fulfillment. And then we see that Jesus was commended by the Father, commissioned by the Holy Spirit, communicated his Father's message, was committed to meekness, he comforted the weak, and one day he's going to consummate his victory over sin and Satan. 
So let's see how the Spirit of God interprets Isaiah through Matthew. And we begin with, he was commended by the Father. First part of verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Was God the Father pleased with the Son? Yes, he was. What did he say at the Son's baptism? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What did he say at the transfiguration? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what did he do after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended back to glory? He exalted him. He seated him in his right hand and put all authority under him, which is the ultimate act of his commendation. He was commended by the Father. That just shows us how far off the Jewish religious leaders were. The one whom God was commending, they're condemning. Now the term servant here is a bit unusual. It's not the word doulos. The word doulos was often translated as servant, but it actually it means slave. It's, that's the word you would probably expect, but it's not that word. It's the word pais which is often translated child or son, but it's also often translated servant. Therefore, it's a very fitting word for Christ because he's both the son and the servant. Um, it appears in secular Greek to refer to an especially intimate and trusted servant. It's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis 24-2 to speak of Abraham's chief servant. It's also used in Genesis 41.10 to speak of a royal servant. It's used in Job 4.18 to speak of angels who were God's supernatural servants. And so God is saying through Isaiah, this is my servant, not just any servant, but my son's servant, the trusted, intimate one, the chief one, the royal one, the supernatural one. And the phrase, I have chosen, is a marvelous phrase. It translates a verb in which the form found here occurs only here in the Greek New Testament and nowhere else. Uh, it indicates a firm and determined choice. This seems to be the way it's used. For example, <clears throat> it's used in secular Greek to speak of irrevocably adopting a child into a family as an heir who could never be disenfranchised. Uh, that's obviously a very firm commitment. God the Father has irrevocably chosen his beloved son to be his divine servant, the only one qualified for the task of redemption. Read through Hebrews 1, and you will see all about how he chose the son to fulfill this role. Isaiah 49 says the same things about how the father has chosen the son. This being chosen by the father was so much a part of the messianic identity that the Messiah became known as the chosen one in the Jewish mind. And so Matthew's readers would know that Matthew is quoting a messianic passage and that he is saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one. In fact, this idea of the Messiah being the chosen uh, one is so much part of Jewish thought that in Luke 23, 35, when Jesus is being crucified, the Jewish rulers were deriding him, and they said, Let he saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Uh, so they were very familiar with that title as a messianic title, the chosen one of God. And then he adds, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And the word here is from the root word agape, uh, which, as you know, refers to the deepest, richest, truest, highest kind of love. In Ephesians 1.6, he is called the Beloved. In Colossians 1.13, he calls him the Son of his love. Uh, the intimacy that the Father and the Son enjoy is described in John 1.1, where it says the Word was with God. In Greek, that phrase refers to being face-to-face -face in a close relationship with the Father. By the way, let me just remind you that it's not possible for anyone else to be well-pleasing to the Father unless they are found in Jesus Christ. 
uh, it says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. If anyone is to please God, it is to be in Christ because he's well pleased with Christ. And so Christ is commended by the Father because he's specially loved by the Father. He's chosen by the Father. He's well pleasing to the Father. That brings us to the next characteristic of the Messiah, which Jesus fulfilled, and that's that he's commissioned by the Holy Spirit. The next part of verse 18 says, I will put my spirit upon him. Through Isaiah, God had promised that when the Messiah came, the spirit would be upon him. Now, we know that that happened for certain in a unique way at his baptism because it says the spirit of God descended like a dove. But I don't believe that's when it started. I believe Jesus Christ was indwelt by the power of the Spirit of God from the moment he was conceived. Uh, it says of John the Baptist in Luke 1 that he was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. And if that's true, could be true of a human being that had, had to be true of the God-man. Uh, it, it says in Matthew 1.20 he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And now if he's already God and the Father and the Son and the Spirit are already one in him. What did God mean then when he says, I will put my Spirit upon him? Well, the only way we can understand it is to see it in a twofold manner. First, it was a granting of power to his human nature. Uh, his divine nature didn't need it, but his human nature did. You see, he was in every point tempted like we are. He was truly human. He grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. He was tempted. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He was tired. He felt pain. He wept. He had emotions. In the garden, he said, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That's his humanness speaking. His humanness needed the indwelling power of the Spirit of God in order for it to function in concert with his deity. And so he was granted that, and that's why in Acts 10.38, it says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It was for power in a unique and marvelous way. There's a second reason, though, and it's tied up, tied to his baptism. Jesus required the unique anointing of the Spirit in order to attest to his royal service as Messiah. Uh, for 30 years he had lived in obscurity, uh, but when he began his ministry he was given a very special attestation of authority and approval by the Father. He was uniquely anointed by the Holy Spirit. In, a fact, in a sense that fulfilled Isaiah 61.1, which Jesus quoted there in the synagogue when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel. Uh, so there was not only the Spirit of God from the very conception, from his very conception to empower his humanness, but there was also that special anointing at the baptism for his royal service. He was granted the Spirit. And so he functioned in the Father's plan and by the Spirit's power, because you see, as the perfect submissive servant, he submits himself to the Father on one hand and to the Spirit on the other hand. Another way Jesus demonstrated his messiahship. Well, the next thing he did is he communicated the right message. Look at verse 18, the next part of verse 18. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The Hebrew in Isaiah says, he will bring out right. Uh, he will bring out what is right. He's, he's going to give the right message. Uh, the world is full of bad answers to good questions, isn't it? Uh, but Yahweh's beloved servant will bring the message of justice, truth, and righteousness. He, his is the right message, the real truth, the good news, the gospel, which is in harmony with God's will. It's extremely important to note that it says he will proclaim it to the Gentiles. And that tells us that all the way back, as far as the Old Testament prophets, he was prophesied to be the savior of the world, not just Israel. Listen, don't ever believe for a minute that Christ came into the world to save Israel only. Yes, it was to be first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. 
But God intended the Messiah to be the Savior of the world, and Israel was to be his agency to reach all of those Gentiles. For when Israel rejected him, God set them aside temporarily and established his church. And someday during the tribulation, he will return to dealing with Israel, and it will then turn to him as their Messiah and serve him. But the gospel was always intended for the world. Uh, the first person to whom he revealed his messiahship was who? A non-Jewish Samaritan woman by a well, right? Who probably was a prostitute or something very close. I don't want to tell you something. Mark 3.8 says he preached to the Gentiles from Idumea, across the Jordan, uh, from Tyre and Sidon, he healed a Gentile centurion slave and commented about the centurion, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. The Jews resented Jesus for giving attention to the Gentiles and especially his treating them equally with the Jews. Uh, the idea of the Messiah coming to redeem Gentiles was anathema to them. Uh, that, there's a, kind of an interesting incident that tells us how much they hated the Gentiles. In Acts 22:21, Paul is giving his testimony, defending himself and the gospel before a Jewish mob that wanted to kill him. But he's under the protection of Roman soldiers. And he's telling them about himself and what the Lord had done in his life. And speaking of what the Lord told him in a vision, he, Paul says, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And as soon as he said that, guess what happened? The next verse, verse 22 says, And they were listening to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And verse 23 says, They were crying out and throwing off their garments and tossing dust into the air. I mean, can you imagine such a response simply to him saying that God sent him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles? It's utterly ridiculous. Does that give you an idea about how they felt about the Gentiles? But always, from the very beginning, God's plan of redemption had always included the Gentiles. And so Jesus the Messiah communicated the right message of God's justice and deliverance from sin to both Jews and Gentiles. There's a sixth principle. This is where we come right to the heart of the passage. It's that he was committed to meekness says he will not quarrel, verse 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Why did he withdraw and why did he spend his time in the quiet places and quiet people? Because Isaiah said, Messiah will not quarrel nor will he cry out. Uh, the word translated quarrel means to argue noisily and angrily. And the word translated cry out means to shout or scream excitedly. The word was used of a dog's barking or a raven's squawking. And what those words mean is that Jesus didn't come into the world to hassle and fight and argue and wrangle and argue loudly in the streets. Uh, he didn't come to be a rabble-rousing, brawling, argumentative debater with the scribes and the Pharisees and anyone else who disagreed with him. He spoke with dignity and control. He used no means of persuasion other than the truth. Uh, yes, there were times when his words to the self-righteous Pharisees were blunt, direct, even harsh and filled with righteous anger, but he was still dignified and under control. He wasn't a loose cannon with his words. He was committed to meekness. What a contrast to the rabble-rousing, mauling, brawling, hassling Pharisees who continually stirred up trouble. Jesus never gave political speeches or organized a mob to try to gain a following or political power. He never appealed to people on the basis of some kind of crazy emotions. He was not a rabble-rouser. He didn't indulge in the raving of a fool. Ecclesiastes 9.17 says, <coughs> The words of the wise heard in restfulness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. He was filled with dignity. When he was teaching, he didn't yell at the crowds like some kind of raving maniac. Uh, there was a gentleness and a meekness and a lowliness. He, 
He never sought to secure his rightful place by political power or force or politically insightful speech. He didn't shout down his opposition. He didn't turbulently agitate to get his point across like so many do to lead various causes. He was quiet and he was composed. And by contrast, the Pharisees were furious. Then the seventh principle, he comforted the weak. Look at verse, first part of verse 20. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Now, what does that mean? Well, in ancient times, reeds were used for many different purposes. They were used to make flutes and measuring rods, riding pins, and many other purposes. But once a reed was bent or battered, it wouldn't stay straight. So they would simply throw it away and get a new one. Uh, if a shepherd made a flute out of a reed to play while he was watching his sheep, and it cracked or broke, it wouldn't play music, so he would just break it, throw it away, and get a new one. And then there's the sm smoking wick. They used flax to make wicks for their lamps, those little clay pots that held oil. And they had a stem that came out, and they would stick the wick in the end of the stem and let it soak in the oil and then light it. But eventually that wick would burn away and begin to smolder. And it didn't give light, and since a smoldering wick was useless, it was put out and thrown away, just like the battered reed. So what's the picture? The battered reed and the smoldering wick represent people whose lives are broken and worn out. They're hurting people. The people everyone else steps on, discards, and throws away as useless because they can no longer make music or give light. Society cast off the weak and the helpless the suffering and the burden. In that day, they were the people the Romans ignored as, as useless and the Pharisees despised as worthless. They're the weak, the powerless, the helpless, the ones destroyed by sin, the unworthy who bowed down with care, having no spiritual resources. They're a world of trampled, despised, ignored, suffering, hurting people. Those are the kinds of people Jesus goes to. He doesn't break those kind of battered reeds. He doesn't snuff out the smoldering wicks. What this verse is saying is, very, is that the very opposite is true. Instead of breaking off that battered reed, he strengthens it. He'll pick up the battered reed, repair it. He'll play a medley through it like none that's ever been heard before. He'll fan that smoldering wick back into flame and it'll light a room. In other words, he'll pick up the sick, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, the sorrowing, the fearful, the doubters, the sinners who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness and meet their needs. That's the kind of savior he is. He was the antithesis of the religious leaders around him. That's why back at the beginning of this book, in chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew quotes Isaiah to tell us that they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Because he truly did demonstrate the heart of God. No wonder he's the beloved servant. Finally, not only was he condemned by false servants and conformed to God's plan, commended by the Father, commissioned by the Spirit, communicating the right message, committed to meekness, comforting the weak. Finally, he's going to consummate the victory. Look at verse 20, last part, until he leads justice to victory. What that's simply saying is that ultimately the right will win. In spite of all the persecution and difficulty and rejection, in the end, he will win the victory. At the great consummation, sin will be banished forever. And then as Amos said, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Habakkuk said the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. What a great promise. Ultimately, he will win and consummate the victory. Let me close this portion of scripture with two applications. First, we as members of the human race are basically destructive, aren't we? I mean, when you were a kid and you saw some kind of insect on the sidewalk, what did you do to it? You stomped on it and ground it into the concrete. You saw some wildflowers in a field, and rather than leaving them there for everyone to enjoy, you picked them all and took them home to your mom. If you came across a thistle plant with its top blooming, a beautiful purple flower, rather than leaving it there, you whacked it off. You got older, you got a BB gun. Next thing you know, you're cutting notches in the stock for every bird you shot and killed. I mean, you say, Bruce, where do you get these kind of crazy ideas? They're all things I did when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I could tell you all kinds of stories about my destructive nature as a kid, but they would consume the rest of the time. Um, but all of us have something in us that's just sort of destructive. Something, some of us have more than others. But in 10 minutes, we can create havoc in a little part of God's world. You see, that is a trait of fallen human nature and a trait of Satan. That is a destructive, damning character. But God's not like that. He doesn't break the battered reed. He doesn't blow out the smoldering wick. He makes it live. God builds up. Men destroy. God gives life. Men kill. What the scripture is saying in this passage is God wants to give life to fallen sinful people. He wants to fan their smoldering wick. He wants to play a new tune through their battered reed. And those who come to him through his son Jesus Christ, that's exactly what he does. Second, not only is Jesus Christ the beloved servant of God, but he demands that we follow in the same pattern. As believers, he's our shepherd. Then we, as his sheep, need to follow him and do whatever he commands of us. If he was condemned by false shepherds, then I and all of your pastors here at Lakeside ought to be condemned by the false shepherds we see in our society. We need to stand firm for the truths found in God's word, and when we do that, we're going to be ostracized and maligned and condemned by the world, and you should be characterized the same way. We should be concerned to conform our lives to God's will, to be utterly and totally submissive and obedient to that. We should be concerned with hurting people. We should be commended by the Father as good and faithful servants. We should so live and minister that the Father will say of us, with him my soul is well pleased. We should be commissioned by the Spirit. We should be communicating the right message. We should be committed to a meek, gentle, quiet spirit that doesn't go around being offensive in how we present the truth of God's word, yet never compromising on that truth. We should be comforting the weak, having a heart to lift up the fallen, to lift up the battered and broken and seek out the poor and the outcast. And we should do all within our power through him to consummate the victory by leading souls to Christ and seeing his kingdom advance. In summary, we have a direct message to those who don't know Christ, to see him for who he is. And then we have a direct message to those of us who do, to follow his pattern. That's for us. And that brings us to the end of this section. Any comments or questions before we go? Anything to add? Okay. Yes, Maru. Uh, when you see the essential church, you see the hatred. You see the same hatred. They yeah. hated. Yeah. They hated. They did everything they could to destroy the church. The kingdoms open, the Costco open, but not the church. Yep. And they would go and harass those people every Sunday. Yep. And they ended up having to pay every lawsuit. Yep. They did. I mean, it was. It was I, I if you haven't seen it, it's worth two hours and six minutes of your time. Yeah. Okay, Frank, close us, please. Yeah.